a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Growing up as a Vietnamese immigrant in the 80s in Australia, Jerry Mai's lunchbox, as you can imagine, looked a little different to most of his school friends. Jerry started a chefing career at some of Melbourne's best Asian institutions, places like Longgrain or Seamstress and Ginger Boy. She headed to London and spent two years working with David Thompson at NAM and also at Zuma. After returning to Australia, she now has three phonom stores, as well as Anam in the CBD and Beer Hoy in Melbourne's Outer East. Now with her own family, Jerry and her wife are rearing their son to be passionate not only about food, but about their Vietnamese heritage. Jerry is here to chat about growing up as a migrant in the bland Australian foodscape that was 80s Bris Vegas. And also about the difficult times right now in the middle of what has been a crisis for hospitality. Jerry Mai, welcome. Thank you. You're going to criticise my pronunciation now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Is it Beer Hoy? Beer Hoy. Beer Hoy. Yeah. Yeah, see, I'll just get I just could be. Do you know how long it took me, even as a professional chef, and I go to Victoria Street all the time, I reckon it was 10 years ago, somebody actually turned around and said, it's not faux. No. <laughs> it's fur. It's fur. Yeah. And then ever since then, I keep going to people, it's not faux, it's fur. And then when I went to Vietnam, I go, of course it's fur. And when you realise where it comes from, I go, why do we get those things wrong? But nobody ever actually told us. I don't think anybody stopped us saying, well, it's not Well, at least you said faux instead of po or something oh, like po. that. Yeah, yeah, it could be po. But you know, for me, when I turned up in Australia in 91, one of my kind of pivotal moments was going to Victoria Street or going to uh, Footscray mm. and discovering Vietnamese food. Because in London, I think we were preoccupied, well, I was preoccupied with kind of, you know, French, English, you know, franglais, Michelin star food. But, you know, when we ate outside of work, it was Chinese maybe, or it was, uh, you know. you Indian. Indian massive. Yeah. And Vietnamese community mm. not, not massive. So when I came here, I'd be up and down Victoria Street like mm. crazy, you know, forking through all the, you know, the ingredients and buying beautiful seafood and eating fur and bang xiao and all this sort of stuff and going, wow, what's this? And it's always been one of my favourite cuisines. I might be biased, but I think it's a fantastic cuisine. It's so light, delicate, with wonderful flavours and, and textures and tastes. It's textural, isn't yeah, it? very textural. And it's, and it's fresh and it always yeah. strikes me, whether it is or not, as being healthy. Yeah, well, it is, I think. We cook it with a lot of oil and so forth, but... The herbs, the salad, the yeah. crunchy, the punchy, the mint, the Vietnamese mint, everything's wrapped in a lettuce leaf and all the flavours are, are really tasty and they all gel together really, really well. Yeah. So rewinding the clock and going back to your early childhood, was that in Vietnam or was that in Australia? When did you come to Australia? My parents arrived in Australia in 1984. How old were you at the time? I was six years old. So do you have many memories of uh, Vietnam or...? Very limited. Very little because, uh, you know, my, my father was Vietnamese, born in, in Cambodia, and he lived through Pol Pot, then came to Vietnam, met my mother, and then the Vietnam War, they got married, they had me, sent me to the countryside with my grandparents for a few years while they did, I guess, illegal trade, if you like to call it, sugar. Uh, sugar was not readily available and it was only, you get so much sugar and rice and so salt from the government. And so they would um, shuffle sugar and salt <laughs> up and down into Cambodia. Right. So they did that for a while. And then my 
father then, they left and we were in a Thai refugee camp for about three years, a couple of different Thai refugee camps. Fortunate thing, my father, a very clever man, um, could speak Thai, Cambodian, Vietnamese, was learning English. So he spent a part of that as a, uh, funnily enough, a photographer, because you would take photos and send them home. Right. And to help translate for people doing their visa applications. So he was a translator in some aspect for a little time. And also they found time to run a little cafe in the middle of a refugee camp that was a tin shed and they just served coffee. And I was like, how do you even come to do that? Yeah. We were there for about three years. We got moved around just a little bit. Um, a funny story though, most refugee stories are, are quite terrible and, and he, I, I've heard a lot of them. Uh, and my mother's told me a lot of stories, pirates and so forth. But he basically had someone who was on a boat that he knew that he was already trading with with the sugar and the rice and so forth. And the person helped them into a boat, come across into Thailand, and then they went straight to a police station and said, I'm a refugee, I need help. And so from there, they were sent to a refugee camp. They realised that he could speak these languages, so that was very helpful. And it was really good, you know. We're the lucky few families that... Uh, don't have a hideous story in the, you know, on a boat for weeks and weeks on end. So we were quite lucky in that sense. Do you talk to your dad? Are your parents still alive? Are they both with us? So my mum lives out in Springvale. Right. My dad just passed away right. um, a few weeks ago. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, you know, it's been really difficult because it's been, uh, it's been really odd for us because he's not been well for a, a while. He's had COPD and he's had, he's got emphysema. And um, we thought he was going to be around for a really long time. He said yeah. such a large part of how the family would run and, and, and function. And, and, you know, he's so jolly. He's such a jolly, such a giving person. I remember part at family parties, first guy on the karaoke, can't, <laughs> does not have a tune in him, <laughs> but he's screaming out karaoke songs. Yeah. It was a shock. Do you think part of that, that life, you mm. know, in Australia, for example, was a reaction to the hardship? going through Cambodia and Pol Pot's time mm. and then finding yourself in Vietnam as a immigrant, I suppose, mm. and then getting through the war and then going to Thailand, that's you're a man or a, a man and wife with a, some determination. And I, I think a lot of people in that generation did, though. One thing that my mother said after his passing was that you came out here, what the Vietnamese say is uh, white hand, you had nothing. You came out here with nothing. You persisted and brought your family out here. You then had two more children. You fought all the way through with nothing on your side, nothing given to you. But now with everything that you've done for us, we have a house, the children are doing well, and she said, we can't thank you enough. Mm. How proud do you think he was of you and your career and your restaurants? I mean, he would would he come and eat and... Uh, so, Criticise your food? <laughs> always. Still thinks I can't cook. <laughs> so the city ones I used to come and visit every now and again, especially when we opened the first few Fernoms, um, they were there quite often and he was a lot healthier then as well. Tasting the broth, you know, making sure the staff were right. And then when we opened Bihoi in Glen Waverley, they were there a lot. I did not realise I did not need a restaurant manager. Oh, that your parents were My parents were there. <laughs> they were giving you reports. Yeah, they were cross it all, filming stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And, and sending it to me. So, you know, they've been involved in every 
uh, venue, every process, every step, every step of the way. We're very uh, cultural in the sense that we believe in blessing the restaurant, line dancing, incenses burnt at our restaurants every day for our gods. These are cultural things that they've passed on to me mm. that I love and I love that part of my heritage and I hope to pass these things on to my son, mm. you know, for have, him to do that. Have they got stronger because you have a son now? Have those that sense of your culture, has it become stronger as you've got older? Yes. Look, it was always very important to me because I have two younger brothers where my youngest brother and I are about 12 years apart and he's only in his late 20s. I'm in my, you know, 40s. And I feel it's already slightly lost with him. His Vietnamese to English is uh, questionable. Uh, my uh, middle brother and I love watching him speak Vietnamese. Constant source of amusement, oh, is it? constant. <laughs> Constantly. We were just listening to him on the weekend. So he's like a five-year-old trying to speak. So in Vietnamese, gong uh, ma đi means I'll take mum there, I'll take you there. Ma is mum. So he doesn't say that. He goes, gong bưng ma đi means that I will carry you there. Right. And and my brother Dave and I will be like, I'd like to see you do that. Yeah, come on. Off you go. You carry her there. (laughs) And he's like, but in English, you know, no, it's not. (laughs) Does does the the attempt at humiliation improve it or does he he just like, no, I'm not not fast. No, 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 it improves it. He gives it a really good go. And we give him credit for that. And we we eventually fix it, you know, tell him what the right words are, but it's humour and... In listening to him first. When, when you talk to a lot of, um, you know, immigrants or first, gener- first second generation, for example, mm. they talk about either loss of identity or trying to assimilate and losing their identity and then maybe trying to regain it later and finding it difficult because they, or going back to Vietnam, for example, and finding out that you don't feel very Vietnamese. Well, that's it. And that's my youngest brother. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why my wife and I are making such a conscious effort to make sure that our son uh, understands some of this. At some stage, we would love to go and live in Vietnam for a, a period of time, uh, selfishly because I just want to go and live in yeah, Vietnam for a not? while and eat. Yeah. But for my son and, and, and any children that we, other children we may have, to at least know some of the language, have some of the respect. There's a lot of uh, respect for elders in our culture, um, from the way you greet someone, you say hello to someone, to the way you act with them and to the way you interact with them and then to the way you when you leave them. Yeah. These were taught to me. I still do that when I see older or younger or, or any Vietnamese people, especially when at our house. I still get bollocked at home when my uncles and aunties say, well, you're not supposed to say that, you yeah. know. I want to make sure that he gets that. I want to make sure he understands how important it is to to bow when you meet someone, to to greet them well. And, and, um, and it reflects then all the way back to my parents. If I've teach my son well, that means my mum has taught me well. That means they've done a good job. Yeah. And I want him to understand how lucky he is. As kids here, you know, we, uh, we get given everything nearly. Uh, everything's at your fingertip. Everything's available. We don't understand how hard it is to strive to to do that. My mum still reminds me how she has to carry water in a thing and jug and mm. for the family. So I want him to understand that. I want him to see that how lucky he is to be able to live in this country. I want to see how lucky he is to what my parents have sacrificed to get me here, therefore we're able to have him. Uh, I want him to understand that. I want him to learn that and respect that yeah. so that he doesn't take it for granted. But also a wonderful thing to be able to stay connected Correct. to Vietnam. So mm. you can, I mean, not right now, we're in the middle of <laughs> hospitality, restaurant travel hell. Yeah. But um, <laughs> to be able to stay connected and to go and live there, for you, an amazing experience, mm. but for him too, right? And that connection through food, I imagine. Yeah. How old is he now? 
So he's two and three months. Oh, so so you got twenty. A long, you got a long way to go, right? So well, he's he was last night. We were making um, fish tacos, and I grilled the corn. So he's got this little stool that he takes all over the little kitchen, stands up on them whenever he wants, and then he'll be helping me. He was helping me grill the corn last night. Yeah. Sometimes he just decides he needs to wash the dishes, just moves himself around. So he's getting involved. When we yeah. do curry paste, he pounds it. I give him the morning pestle, and he can start it. We're putting in something in the processor or something. Little stick blender, he'll do that. So I'm starting to do yeah. those things with him because I find that my parents did that to me, for me. I, I remember my parents when they arrived here, they worked very hard. They were doing night shift, day shift, all kinds of things. And one of the first things that I had to do was learn how to cook because mum was either working or dad was working or mum and dad were working when they're changing over their shifts. Yeah, and I had to eat. <laughs> So, you know, uh, my mum says that, uh, so if you want to eat, you got to get in the kitchen. <laughs> so I got in the kitchen. I, I learned how to make noodles and soups, noodle soups, instant noodles. Still my repertoire. Like, that's what I go to yeah. if I'm cooking home noodle soup. My daughter's now just on 19. Mm. And for a number of years, it used to frustrate the hell out of me that I'd try everything to get her to eat everything. Uh. And there'd be things that she wouldn't. And I go, oh, I failed, you know. <laughs> But what becomes a great pleasure is that you'll go out to a restaurant and as they get older, their palate changes and grows. Mm. And there's little moments where you feel flush with pride where you go, I did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got there. I mean, for a birthday, I just went, I said, what do you want for your birthday? And she goes, I want French. And I go, what do you want? She goes, steak tartare. And I go, that's my girl. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah, you go, yeah. yeah I got it. And, yeah. you know, to hell with her boyfriend, you know, he's got to pick his game up, you know. She eats steak tartare, <laughs> not eating burgers, you know. So, But it's, but it's, it's that kind of, um, and, and that's a lovely connection mm. that you can have and carry. From your memories as a child, struggles at school, how was it in the 80s? You were in Brisbane, right? It was Vegas. Yeah, it was a culinary wasteland. <laughs> well, Everybody in- from Brisbane's going, what? But I remember, <laughs> even when I touched down in, you know, the early 90s, I remember going to Brisbane and going, oh, my God. Well, you, you know, know, we didn't go like to a lot of restaurants. White, very white bread, right? We didn't, yeah, very, very. But I was very fortunate. I lived in West End. So it was a nice culture of, of Vietnamese people, uh, Greeks and Italians. I think I'm very drawn to these kind of suburbs because that's where I live yeah, now. Yeah, good, I mean, it's great. And you um, put the three of them together, that's spectacular. I mean, it's a great barbecue. Yeah, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Between the, the lamb on the spit, the pig on the spit. Yeah, and lots of conversation uh, about food. Yeah, and it's all about food. You know, their, their culture between uh, Vietnamese, Greek and Italian is, is food is first and foremost. Family is based around food. I'd be able to have a lot of Vietnamese. I have friends that were Greek and Italian, so I was very lucky to be able to try all those cuisines when I was growing up as well. We used to swap lunches at school. Okay. Uh, swap a salami sandwich for a fried rice. Yeah. I'm winning. They're winning. We're, yeah, we're all like happy. That. And the poor Aussie kids are like sitting there with their chips and their meat pie. I'm like, mate. <laughs> yeah, you've lost. <laughs> you've lost. Oh, ham and cheese sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if so, they're lucky. Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up in West End. I was very lucky. It was, it was a lot of Vietnamese people had lived there. Um, uh, how immigration worked back then was totally different to how it worked now. Uh, it was more supportive and more um, teaching. You know, you, my dad was shown a trade. They were going to English classes. It was a lot more supportive back then and more accepting back then as well. I, I was very lucky. We, we grew up. My dad was a mechanic, so continued with that. I was open to a lot of cuisine, so I was very yeah. lucky in that sense. So you um, never felt marginalised or, you know, it's like that, what's that movie where, Wog Boy, isn't it, where he opens his lunchbox and he's got a salami and bread and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, all, but that is exactly what 
you know, but because I was very lucky in an area of like, well, boy, he's, you know, he goes to that yeah. school, it's all Greeks, it's natural. I went to where it was a lot of Vietnamese people. So that I, uh, I had fried rice, uh, you know, sometimes I have a noodle, you know, a hutiu or a, a dry fur dish in my, mm. my lunchbox. But I had other people there that I was changing it with. I had a Greek and Italian that I was changing baklava for and, and, and you know, spanakopita for. Yeah. And it was such a West End was such a multicultural sort of suburb. We were very lucky. Yeah, you know? I've got I've got friends that are well, their kids are growing up. I reckon in the best foodie family. They got uh, Italian and Chinese, and you should see the family get-togethers. I mean, they're massive. It'd be wonderful. And they're just eating everything from you know shumai to porchetta, and yeah. it's just brilliant. And you just you're just there going wow, and the kids eat everything. But I, I, that's what I love about um, with Harry. Whenever I'm home, I try to make him. He eats what we eat. I got asked once, like, do I change the way I eat or change everything for, for Harry? I was like, no, Harry changes for me. We're trying to teach Harry where he can eat anything and everything. He gives everything a try. If he doesn't like it, he spits it out. Yeah. It's okay. Next time we'll give tried. another go. And that's the whole thing of getting him in the kitchen is getting him used to being in the kitchen, to being involved in cooking so it doesn't become tedious and it doesn't become a chore. It doesn't become so forceful because for me it wasn't forceful. Yeah. For me it was a natural progression. My parents had a cafe. They had a, a noodle shop in Cambodia. They had a cafe in Thailand. They had restaurants in, in Brisbane. For me it was a natural progression for me to stay in hospitality but was started with my grounding and my roots where I was shown basic food to cook. I was cooking because I wanted to eat and I really enjoy eating. Yeah. When you make it like it's your turn to cook, you have to cook, it becomes a chore, it becomes something you retaliate against. Yeah. And so I want to make it fun for Harry. I want to make it that, you know, he loves going in the kitchen, he loves cooking and he's going to enjoy it. Probably I don't want him to go into hospitality. Everyone says that, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, you probably say that the same thing. I said it. Mind you, I said, my daughter said to me when they're in, I think, year 11, and she said, we can't do anything. And I said, what is that? She said, well, you'll do different things. So restaurateur, you know, lawyer, accountant. Mm. And every dad said, whatever you do, don't be a restaurateur. Whatever you do, don't be an accountant. Whatever you do, don't be a lawyer. She said, yeah. so what's left? What are we doing? <laughs> so I don't think it's just us. Yeah. So what was, the, what was the point? Did you become a chef? Was that first choice, first career? Yeah, I think it was my first choice in my first career. Uh, I finished year 12. Then I did a TAFE course in marketing. I was like, I, I'm over this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to sit in another classroom. And I started working. Um, one of my first jobs was uh, Topolino's on uh, ah. Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. But that's very different food. So you're not, yeah. you're not going, right, going to be the best Vietnamese chef in, in Australia. No, no, I, I did. You just uh, launched yourself into a yeah. generic career yeah. as a chef. <laughs> yeah? yeah, so I started there and I thought, oh, this is great. Like the, the hours are crazy, but I really like the people are really nice. And then I started doing Italian food. My first restaurant, uh, a proper restaurant I worked in was Lotus. Right. Back in the days. Yeah. And I did Italian food, you know, and I loved it. I had such a good time. And when they changed uh, from Peroni's to Lotus was when Asian food came in. And I'm like, hold on, I know this food. <laughs> I really like this food. I understand this food. And that's when I found the cuisine that I wanted right. to do. So it was, a kind of, it was a little journey to rediscover your background, your food, your heritage. Yeah. Not just the food you're cooking at home, but going, you know what, everybody else wants to eat this too. Yeah, did and you, it's tasty. Did you look at, though, all the restaurants, say, in... Victoria Street, Footscray, you know, wherever you are, Preston, and go, that's not what I want to do? A hundred percent. I think for such a long time, my predecessors have uh, treated Vietnamese food as a Vietnamese and Chinese mishmash of yeah. just so we can get anybody through the door. Back then it was about making money. It was, it was about survival and not so much about teaching or understanding of cuisine. 
now a lot of restaurants down there are more separated into, yeah. you know, you go to Tanha too and you know you get amazing bun sao and you get amazing bun kun. Especially being to Vietnam as well. You know, no Vietnamese restaurant in Vietnam can you walk in and go, I'll have uh, this protein with any of these 10 sauces. It yeah. just doesn't happen. I, I remember traveling once and uh, I told someone they couldn't have a chicken and cashew when they go to Vietnam. And he goes, what do you mean? My local Vietnamese restaurant has it. I'm like, well, it's not Vietnamese. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not going to see it. No, but we've been so, my predecessors have set it so that it was survival. And so now the next generation, my generation, the generations after that are redefining Vietnamese food and, and, and challenging people. Uh, I still find that Vietnamese food is very challenging for a lot of people. Those that have travelled uh, have a better understanding of it and it's been, you know, maybe the last 10 to 15 years that more of us have travelled to Vietnam and understood the food a little bit more. Like yourself, you've been there, you know, heaps of times. I've seen your yeah. shows. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot more understanding. And the more that understanding, more travel, the wider Vietnamese food. Because we've only scratched the surface. Yeah. 15 years ago, if I said a pho, no one would know what a pho or a bun mi or, or a, a rice paper roll or even a grilled uh, rice paper. No one would know that. But thanks to people like yourself who've traveled and then done shows in Vietnam, showing things like that, people going, oh, wow, there's just more. Yeah. In the last 15 years, we've only scratched a slight surface of Vietnamese food. The rest of us, my, myself and the next generation which I'm going to do is open that whole yeah. thing right up. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. So if you look at your career where you, you know, worked at Longgrain mm. and then worked with David Thompson in London, which is Thai, mm. why did you invest that time into Thai? I think it was the fact that we forget how close Thai and Vietnam are. And that's also why I try to do a bit of Japanese food as well, because, you know, for a short time of there, the Japanese came down from China and had taken that northern central part of Vietnam for a very long time. That's why they've left so much stuff in Hoi An. Mm. Um, Vietnamese food is just not what we think it is. Is the Thai influence, the Chinese influence, and the French influence, Japanese influence. Yeah. And I wanted to have a go at these cuisines so that I can understand how it's affected our food and how the eating with your hand and let it wrapping and all that kind of stuff and mm. the beautiful baguettes and pâtés and the spices that we braise. You know, a master stock braise is not a Vietnamese thing. It was brought in by the Chinese and so being able to work with those cuisines and understanding it better made me be able to translate it better. So was that deliberate? You know, did you go around in a circle, sweep it I up? Really, and, I really so felt it was, like it. Because <laughs> it sounds like it now, but yeah. was it deliberate at the time? Um, look, I, at the time was I, I knew where I wanted to go and this is what I tell young chefs that come and they say, what do I do with my career? I worked out where I wanted to go. I wanted to open my own restaurant. I wanted to show off Vietnamese food in a manner that no one had seen before or had it even considered before, and how was I going to get there? And how I was going to get there was I going to, was going to work with some amazing people. I mean, Longgrain was 
fantastic. Seems just I got a bit of that Malaysian food in it. Yeah. Long game was fantastic and still a game changer. At the very time. much so at the time. Mm. And that was 11 years ago, 12 mm. years ago. And then it made sense that when I was going to London that I went to Nam. I begged and pleaded and, and and then I got a jo- I find I got a job. I got an interview. Uh, and then I got a job and then I got abused and I got bollocked. Um, He's a very particular man, isn't he? Very particular man. David Thompson, this is. Yes. I always remember going, this is years ago, going to um, Circa back in the day and having a dinner that he was, that he did. And he was just nothing, there's no compromise, no. No. We were having a conversation, this was afterwards, and I just thought, I don't know if I like you very, I do, I like him. I thought, I don't know if I like you very much because it was just like no prisoners. No, there's no compromise. Things would go in the bin and, yep. you know. He'll stop a whole service because he wasn't happy with the flavour of one broth or he wasn't happy with the way you fried your shallots. Yeah. Because um, he talks about flavour in a very kind of unique yep. way and I feel almost a bit guilty because I don't think that way. Yeah, like, no. I'm not that precise. He fine-tuned the way I, I, I thought. What I thought about Thai food all went out the door the moment mm. he walked in and yelled at me. It must be constant pain for him to see the terrible tie <laughs> that all of us have committed on the world. He doesn't Do want to talk I mean? about it. <laughs> it. It just hurts him a lot, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, a simple thing. Uh, <laughs> I was taught to make a numprik, uh, which is a, uh, a relish uh, with mince, pork and tamarind, young tamarind. And you're supposed to chop it by hand. Somewhere along the line, someone changed it and told me to mince it. I was like, yeah, cool, I'll mince mm. it. He comes in and goes, why'd you mince it? There's a recipe say to mince it. I was like, no, chef. Who told you to mince it? So it's just someone told me to mince it, chef. And he's like, who are you to change a thousand years of tradition? Ooh, that's hard. <laughs> and storms off and slams the door. Yeah. Thanks, chef. <laughs> Thanks, chef. Sorry, chef. See you and tomorrow. And comes right back out and goes, who told you to do it? I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not telling you who told yeah. me. That's going to serve no purpose, but tell me how I'm going to fix it and I'll fix it right now. But the importance of balance mm. to him I it's, every, it's textural. It's absolutely everything. Yeah, because right? if you and I still agree to that today. If you mince something through a mincer, it's finer, it's more granule. But if you hand chop it, the proteins stay intact and it's mm. more textural. So when I think about recipes and when I'm going to do something that's I think quite traditional, it means a lot to me. And I go, I'll just do it this way. It's going to be faster. And I was like, hold on, is it going to have the same outcome as what I want it to? Is it going to do what I want it to? Or no. Yeah. And that whole thing in my head, who am I to change a thousand years of tradition yeah. comes running back. Yeah, but then even David, if you look at it now, I mean, you know, he... Oh, he's know, old now and he's he gone a, soft. Yeah, he was a champion of not changing anything and yeah. then, of course, opens a, essentially a chain of, you know, oh, have restaurants most... that have to, you know, because they can't mm. do it the old way. They've got to do it the quick way. But it's still what we think the quick way, well, what he thinks the quick way is still the long way mm. for us. Whatever we think is the quick way, he's still like long chim, still grilling satay sticks over charcoal and coconut husk because mm. that's how they do it. Yeah. So for him is a quick way. For us, it's still a long way. Yeah. He's someone is I, I highly regard and, yeah. and look up to and I'm very, very lucky to be able to, you know, contact him and go, what do you think of this? And we've been talking about COVID-19 um, through this process and how he's coping across his venues because, you know, he's got multiple venues across the world. Yeah. It's not just one venue or two venues yeah. in a city. So let's talk about that because it's happening right now and I've been obviously following you and and everybody says it. There's been no other time like this that is as horrendous for hospitality. Correct. This and is just... Uh, this is never heard of. This is unseen. Yeah. So, you know, we got hit at Bihoi 
out in Glen Waverley. Because you just opened, hadn't yeah, you? Yeah, we'd opened maybe three months beforehand. Yeah. And by mid-January, <coughs> early February, Glen Waverley was a ghost town mm. because someone was sick and had been in the area um, and Box Hill cleared out. It became a little bit more racial than yeah. it was a virus. Because I remember you were championing, hey, I mean, there were a number of people championing, mm. saying, hey, get back into Chinatown, get back into Glen Waverley, whatever, Springvale Road, because uh, it's it's okay. It's right. Support the restaurants. Yeah. And I think you actually put a very candid post up saying, support us, otherwise we're going. We're, we're done. We're done. We're done. Business is done. And for us, for Glen Waverley, it was very much like that. It was very much, if you don't start coming out, we'll be gone. And we were very lucky. A few people started to come out. Uh, we was beginning to sort of see... The light at the other, uh, the end of the tunnel. Um, people were being more sort of non-racial about it and more thinking about it. I guess in the sense that just because I eat a dumpling doesn't mean that I'm going to get coronavirus. Yeah. You know. So we were coming out of the other side of it, and then everything changed in two weeks. Everything changed. We went into um, lockdown. We were only be able to do one person every four square meters, which we're going out to the other side of it now. And then we we're only allowed to do takeaway. And this was very quick, right? Very quick, within two weeks. Within two weeks. So you're trying to adapt to new rules of social distancing, mm. thinking, first of all, how the hell do I create space between diners? How do I turn tables? Yeah. All this kind of stuff. Yeah. So within another week, going, no. Done. You're shut. Yeah. So we went from basically uh, <clears throat> one announcement of one every per square metre, which, you know, once you take the tables away, it, it, you can't, you can be done. And then went to the next step of only takeaway. And we were running around going, yes, we can do takeaway. We'll do take-home meals. We'll do these things. We'll do all these things. And it just got to that point where I was felt I was caught on the back foot all the time. I wasn't doing my brain any justice because I felt I was becoming a meals on wheels. Yeah. So what did that look like in your business? I mean, so you've gone from busy, hustle and bustle. You're the boss and you're covering how many venues? You've got three, four, five. Five venues, yeah. Yeah. To all of a sudden now micromanaging. I mean, what did it look like? Did you have to shed staff straight away? We shed staff pretty much. Beerho shed staff back in February. Right. The next hit was Annam, so that is they started to shed their staff, and then um, the other, the Emporium and the Melbourne Central store. The last staff to go was at Collins Street. So how many is how many people is that? Oh, we let go of at least a hundred people, because between all the venues, all the casuals had to go. Yeah. And it was our permanent part time, our full time staff that stayed. And then we went to uh, hibernation. I felt we weren't representing the brand very well. I felt like we were chasing our own tail and I couldn't predict the next moves, which yeah. is very hard in business. If you can't do that, yeah. you're lost. You're just like a headless shook running around. And I did, we didn't like that. So we sat down as a team. All the venues sat down as a team and we decided to close the venues. We've only started doing takeaway again the last couple of weeks. And, you know, that has ups and downs. It has its own challenges. I am now a delivery driver for the CBD area. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I deliver food in the evenings. That's what I'm doing after this. <laughs> so we order and we get Jerry Mine knocking yeah. on the door. Hi, Jerry. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Well, I'd feel sorry too. I'd go, I'm sorry. Sorry, guys. I'd come and pick it up, you know. <laughs> but, you know, can I tell you something? In all that chaos, in all that crazy, the best decision we did was to go into hibernation and not, strain any more of our resources, our income or any of that stuff. We have amazing suppliers that were on our side to go, we understand, let's just hold, hold, hold. And we're getting back to the point now where we're doing some takeaway, we're going to see what's going to happen with the 20 people. I've really enjoyed the hibernation. 
Mm. It, it may sound terrible in, in, in the grand schemes of things, but we were running around so much and we were just chasing, chasing, running. I was doing everything possible. I felt I was juggling and on the unicycle and I was, you know, getting out of a clown car. I was doing all that stuff. And the moment we closed everything down, it took me about a week to mourn it. And then I really enjoyed my son's company. Mm. Just before I felt I was missing out on him growing up and they grow so quickly, you know, you, you know, mm. and I, I've really enjoyed the time at home with him. I've really enjoyed the time at home with my wife. Um, it's been a while since we've really been able to stop and look at what's going around. I've been gardening. We've been, you know, I've been cooking up a storm, trying I've all this. I've been watching. You've been making sourdough. Yeah, 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 I've been yeah. making sourdough. It's like everybody's making sourdough, <laughs> but we have to. Sourdough, right? bolognese and mapo tofu. Yeah. <laughs> but I've really enjoyed that time. Mm. And now coming back on the other side, we have a game plan of what we're going to do, how that's going to look like for us when they open for the 20, when they open for the 50, when they open for the 100. Now we just got to get the landlords on our side, but we have a game plan. We yeah. know what path we're in. As soon as they announced the 20, we knew exactly what we were going to do next. And now we've got the date for the 50, we'll know exactly what we're going to do at that stage. Yeah. We, we, we are now ahead. Yeah. Which I never felt we had been through the whole process of closing down. I think the th making sense of it from my perspective, when you rewind and you go into hibernation or they lock it down, it's mm. out of your hands. Yeah. It's, um, you can't do anything about it. There's certainty in knowing it's not nice, mm. but there's certainty in knowing that you can't do anything about it. Correct. And so there's a certain peace of mind and maybe a bit of creativity returns too, mm. you know, revitalise you a little. I suppose the concern is going back into reopening, whatever that looks like. There's a little bit of uncertain. well, there's a lot of uncertainty mm. about what that looks like. How many landlords have you got? Five. Are you, are you five landlords, five venues? Oh. Yeah. So you've really... <laughs> Yeah. I've got five landlords, You've got some hard work. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping, you know, like you said earlier, we all, well, this is a crisis that no one expected to have. This is affecting everybody. Everybody, yeah. Hospitality all across the board. No no one is is exempt from this. Then do we as a, a group in hospitality, do we as an industry come back and go, actually, you know what, we're going to set the next guidelines of how we want our industry to move forward. Because for a long time I felt we were floundering around. Mm. We were lost we were being pushed in one corner by customers, pushed in one corner by a reviewer and a producer and, and so forth. Yeah, I, government I feel and government, everybody else. Yeah, and landlords. Mm. Now is it time mm. that we can make some of the calls ourselves? Eating etiquette had been forgotten, I think. And now can we bring that back? Can we set those guidelines again? Could booking for two or three on a, leaving your credit card details a norm? Can we make that the norm? because the number of no-shows already last weekend when Sydney uh, opened up, there's so many no-shows already. How can you do that to a business when you're out there yeah. to support them that can only sit 20 people? Have you got the confidence to do it? I mean, I sat on the board of the Restaurateurs Association for a number of years, years ago, back in the Phoenix days, I think three days, mm. along with Matteo and all the rest mm. of it. And the biggest problem is you've got a very disparate group of, there's like 4,000, 5,000 businesses at the time, mm. all those years ago, and yet a very disparate group of people running a very desperate bunch of businesses and very hard to get any consensus in a mm. sense of where you're all going to go. You know, like we tried to do a number of initiatives, you know, whether it was group buying or so you've got some confidence in numbers and it's a bit like that now, isn't it? Is there going to be confidence in numbers with restaurants going, you know what, I think we should do that. We'll take credit card deposits. We I, will I think we have to. put our prices up. We I, will, I think we have to because we have to as a group work together because we weren't a group before and we all picked off one by one by mm. one by one. 
through this pandemic, we were mm. all picked off. But if we were uniform, we were working together, we would have been stronger together. Yeah. But do you have the confidence as a, as a small group of businesses to do that, to put your prices up? I think we're going to have a look at it. We're going to have to really discuss it and, yeah. and, and, and look at it with my colleagues and, and, and my friends and sit down and have get a group of chefs together and have an owners together. Do we go forward together mm. stronger or do we go forward together individually and be weaker? Yeah. It's competition though, isn't it? People are that desperate. That is right. That is what, and that's the problem. You know, it's like that's going to be the coffee shop with, that opens next to the coffee shop. Yeah, when you see the reopening now of how desperate people are, because we've been in lockdown for two yeah. months, we've gotten a lot of people have had no income for two months. So the moment someone said five customers are open, but yeah. would you really? Does it? Doesn't make sense. Does no. It? So even ten customers doesn't make no. sense. No, we were always from day one coming back into this. We weren't going to open for under twenty people because mm. it made no sense to us. Yeah, the amount of staff that you have to put on, the amount of our service you have to provide, and now we're talking about you know, no menus, contactless service, all new those processes things. for yeah. many things. Yeah, a whole new issues. Yeah, but if we're only being able to sit two people, uh, twenty people, eight people, those don't turn up. That's so much revenue lost in that venue already. Yeah, I mean, what I think everybody's hoping is going to be a blend of the good decisions and technology mm. that will help the process. You know, like mm. QR scanning, so you can get your menu and you can book and you can confirm the booking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's certainly going to be challenging times. Obviously, you're thinking ahead. You're going, right, I've got 20, I've got 50, I've got 100 in my mind. I've got five venues that I've got to reopen. Where's the optimist in Jerry Mind that says, right, that's where we're going to be next year or the year after? Too serious a question? Yeah, maybe. No. What are you dreaming What's of? What's normality? I mean, what we envision in the next six months, what's going to happen? We hope normality comes to this by sort of September, October, but people have been pushing it out even further. The most important thing, doesn't matter what the government says about 10 people, 20 people, 100 people, 200 people, open the pubs, open the bars, open the nightclubs. If the consumers aren't confident in going out and not getting infected or not getting germs yeah. and so forth, doesn't matter what the government says. doesn't matter what I say to open my venue. What we need to do as a group, as a team in hospitality, to let people know how we're going to make them feel confident yeah. when they come out. Because... Remember the, from the very first moment we went into lockdown, as soon as that fear was planted in everybody's head, people started working from home. People didn't come to the city. People didn't come out. Only went to the grocery shops. Everything shut down. You asked to any restaurant, within a week, 60% income dropped. Mm. By the next week, dropped by 80%. You go from making five dollars $6,000 a night to $800 a night. Yeah. So we need to go take that fear out again and have people have confidence to go back. That's yeah. what my goal is. That's what I'm building towards, yeah. is people having confidence to go out and eat at other venues, not just my venue, but other venues. And yeah. every, if the more people come out to eat and more people are confident to come out and eat and they feel it's safe again to come out and eat, then we're all able to win. Yeah. We all want to get out. I mean, mm. somebody asked me the other day, what, what's the first thing you can, what are you dreaming of? And I go, I'm just dreaming of someone else cooking or I want to go sit at a bar, I want to talk to the bartender, I don't want a cozy, you know. I don't want to wash the dishes anymore. Lit. I don't want to wash the dishes. And I want somebody to make my drink. Yeah. And I want to eat snacks. You know, like I want to, do I you know go, what I mean? Yeah, I want to go to a noodle shop. I want to have my favorite bowl of noodles, hot boiling coming to me. And then I want to get up and go home. Yeah. I don't want to pick that food up. I don't want to take it home. Yeah. Then reheat it in the pot in the Pay microwave. The bill, leave a tip. Yeah. Out the door. Out the door. That's all I want to do. Yeah. So I yeah. think most of us feel that way. Actually, it's funny you should say that. I was up in Sydney. The last meal I had was Rio's, which is a little noodle shop on Falcon Street. Mm. Uh, it does a uh, great ramen. I always get the number eight, which is spicy. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm actually, it was just at that moment where all the supermarkets are being stripped. 
nothing in the supermarket. Like I went to the supermarket and Crow's Nest was just down the road, stripped. There's one young man holding a turnip almost to the light, obviously looking at it going, <laughs> can I eat this? You know, I, I wanted to tap on his shoulder and go, yep, you can eat it, buy it. Because it was pretty much like all the stuff that no one knew how to cook was still yeah. there. And I was sitting in that restaurant and it's exactly what you said. It's that confidence. I was looking and going, do I feel okay about this? Because it's quite mm. tight, you know, guys sitting all around me yeah. and close space. Yeah. And it's that that you've got to get over. But I, I think most of us can't wait. It's about the confidence, as you say, mm. community confidence to go, you yeah. know what? It's all right. We can we can all get out there. Yeah. So I'll rephrase that question. Before COVID-19 hit, what was Jerry Mai dreaming of? <laughs> a couple more venues, but my wife is saying no. Um, I had to make a promise that I wasn't opening anything this year. Yeah. It's turned out well. Good decision. She <laughs> speaks wisely. You know, you do have to listen sometimes. Yeah, yeah. No, she's very wise. So, yeah, this year was about uh, regrouping as group because we expanded quite quickly in the last quarter of last year. This year was about regrouping. And it's funny that COVID-19 did happen because we were regrouping this year to see how we led into the next, the end of this year into next year and how did this was going to look for us in two years, five years, ten years for us. Yeah. And that was the time that we want to take this year to do all those steps and do all those number crunching and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, in some way we've been forced to do that, but yeah. in a different aspect of but not it, expanding anymore, yeah. but of tightening everything yeah. we had. But an interesting move going out to Glen Waverley, for example, I like it. Confident, getting out of the city. Everybody thinks you've got to be in the city. Yeah, no, I so, think it's the best move. Interesting. Because it's challenging in the sense uh, Springvale's down the road. Yeah. Getting My some mum community is down the road. <laughs> yeah, but it's good if getting some community buy-in, different yeah. Uh, market. Yeah. I mean, it was such a different market. We've had to relook at the, venue, the menu a couple of times. I think we've really hit it on the head now. Uh, very traditional Vietnamese meal. You can go in there and have a beer tower and some fried chicken and some skewers and stuff like you would you know, on the streets, you can go in there and have a broken rice or a bumbo hui or, or a pho like you would on a street, you know, in Vietnam. We are about to put snails and stuff on. So that was our goal. Snail soup. Yeah, we're mm. going to put fried snails and snail simmered and coconut cream and like the stuff that you would really eat when you went and sat on the curb and yeah. smashing back beers. So we're going to keep it real tradition out there, really traditional out there invoking people's memories of travel, invoking my memories of travel and, and the local community, Vietnamese community up there, they just want something different. They, they, they just don't want uh, uh, protein and 10 sources. And do you dream of moving interstate or overseas? You know, you look at Luke Nguyen over yeah. in Well, Saigon, he's in Saigon he? at the moment. He's in Saigon, and right? With so Vietnam House. He looks very happy. He looks too happy. Yeah, I know. It annoys me. <laughs> I go on Instagram, I go, Luke, I know. <laughs> your life's too good. Can you stop it? Because we're all it. in lockdown and he's out. And he's out eating and he's doing all this stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, Luke. <laughs> yeah, stop it. On behalf of all of us. So do you have aspirations to do that? My first aspiration is to beat this drama of Vietnamese food yeah. so loud that we have a huge understanding of Vietnamese food. No longer a perception or this... One time at band camp, I ate this and, yeah. you know, therefore that's my whole process of Vietnamese food. I want people to have more understanding of it. I want people to be more daring with it because it's not that scary, apart from the, you know, the unfertilised duck eggs and stuff like mm. that. Uh, it is a fantastic cuisine and that's my goal. Yeah. Be it through venues, be it travelling, be it whatever it may be, you know, unfolding in the years to come. I want to make sure that people have a huge understanding uh, of Vietnamese food and appreciation for Vietnamese food that we're just not a cheap $2 bun me or a $4 bun me. There's more to it than that. When am I coming? When they let it go to 50? 
or a hundred. I'll see how confident I feel. <laughs> Jerry Mai, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Time for some tips and tricks. And you know what? I love Vietnamese food. When I hear Jerry talk about those dishes, I just salivate. But there's one family favourite that I do on a weekly basis, and that's rice rolls. And what I love about it is it becomes like a family affair. You set up a little bowl of warm water, you know, hot water, which you soak your rice sheets in, and you can poach some chicken, cook some noodles, you can have some coriander, some spring onions, some Vietnamese mint, you can have some peanuts. I mean, really the options are endless. And then everybody gets involved. It takes about three seconds to soak a sheet of rice paper, and then you can put your fillings in, your choice, roll them up, and then eat them. And I serve them with things like nok nam or a peanut sauce, and they're absolutely delicious. The other thing is you can go back for seconds if you want them, and the kids don't have to put the green stuff in if they don't want to. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.